Welcome to Enlightenedhood, a sacred space for mothers, mothers to be, and mothers by proxy to share how mindfulness and spirituality intertwine with one of life's biggest responsibilities, motherhood. Each week, we will gather nuggets of inspiration, empowerment, and wisdom from wild and woke mamas who are tapped into their highest selves and raising the next generation along with the consciousness of this planet. I'm your host, Lena Lemos, founder of Enlightenedhood, a community of mindful and spiritual mamas committed to personal growth and divine sisterhood through our one-of-a-kind inner work membership and spiritual magazine. Welcome. I am so grateful that you're here. Hello, you mindful mamas. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest who has been a huge part of my healing journey, whether she knows it or not. For Christmas, my mom actually saw how much healing I needed to do, how much healing I wanted to do, and told me that she would gift me an energy healing session for whatever I needed or wanted or felt drawn to. So she said, pick the person and schedule yourself an appointment. So I thought about it and I was just instantly drawn to the thought of working with a shaman. And I had never worked with a shaman before, but something just instantly screamed, you kind of need someone who can cover all the bases. So I looked for local shamans and I came across Sita, who happened to have a practice in New York City. And as many of you know, I live 30 minutes outside the city in New Jersey, and it just felt perfectly aligned. So I scheduled my appointment had my appointment and it was literally one of those catalyst moments where it was that huge shift in energy towards healing and happiness and really reclaiming my body and my energy. So there's actually an article where I talk about what that session was like on enlightenedhood.com if any of you are interested in a shamanic healing session. But My guest today, Sita, I I asked her, I was like, please come on this podcast and talk about shamanism because we haven't talked about it yet. And the more that I'm drawn to just all different types of energy healing and healing work, I think it's just such an important part and just goes back to the roots of humanity that again, with aspects of spirituality just has so much misconceptions connected to it. So I wanted to set the record straight and just share her beautiful story with you all. So my guest today is Sita Kelly. Sita has a degree in religious studies from the University of California, Santa Barbara. When she was 24, Sita became a nun at the Vendata Society, where she took final vows of renunciation and remained in the convent for 14 years. Entering into a shamanic state and working with guidance on behalf of others came after two significant events in her life. The first was that her spiritual teacher passed away. She was by his side and his spirit passed through her, leaving an opening in her heart and creating space for her to connect with creation. Soon after she left the monastic life, the pain of leaving caused a psychological break so strong that in order to survive, she had to expand her consciousness. This transition was the second significant event. She was introduced to Susan Grimaldi, an internationally renowned Native American shaman. Susan began treating Sita with shamanic healing sessions, and through her recognition and mentoring, 
and through the help of her spiritual lineage, Sita began to work as a shaman. So Sita is sharing that story a little bit more in depth, what that process looked like, how she stepped into her role as a shaman. And I asked what I really wanted to know is when you're going into that different state of consciousness as a shaman and you're helping heal others, what does that look like? What do you see? How do you train yourself for that? And we also recorded this kind of at the beginning of this whole coronavirus pandemic, but I think Sita just offers so many wise parallels between shamanism and how we can approach this new life of social distancing and coronavirus. So without further ado, here's Sita. Tell me about your journey to becoming a shaman because I know that it starts with you being a nun. So can you tell me about that journey? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it does. I spent um, 15 years, 14 years actually um, in a, a monastery, a, a convent. Um, uh, it's called the Vedanta Society, um, which is East Indian. So it's from India. Um, and there are about I think 20 or so Vedanta societies in the United States. Um, but the headquarters are, of course, in India. And um, Vedanta and the order to which I belong to um, was certainly Hindu, but it, a lot of times Hinduism has a lot of um, cultural associations mm -hmm. and um, norms that apply. And this was definitely... Uh, void of some of those it was much more focused on the mystical aspect of hinduism mm -hmm. but it, it definitely was a hindu order is a hindu order um and so yeah i mean how did i oh my gosh how did i how did i end up taking that path that's i mean i never thought that i would be a nun that wasn't like i mean i, I grew up culturally catholic like we celebrated mm -hmm. christmas and Easter with a family dinner, but we never went to church or anything like that. Um, and I would actually say that growing up, I had a bit of an abhorrence for religion. Like I was like turned off and what I had encountered felt pretty dogmatic and um, just rules for the sake of rules without a depth behind it. Um, I, you know, I, I didn't get exposed at a young age to the spiritual aspect of religion. Um, the mystical aspect, you could say. And uh, when I was in college, um, I took a class on Christian mysticism, hmm. um, which I don't know if you've ever read any of the Christian mystics, um, but it's really interesting literature. Um, they never mention Jesus, for example, at least the, the scriptures that I read, the texts that I read. Um, they refer to the divine in more of an infinite sense, a, a, a oneness. They actually use the word the one quite mm. often. Um, and when I read it, it just had a really profound effect on me. And so now at that point, I was probably 19. And the way that I felt when I read that text was like, wow, if this is true for those texts, if this is true, then like nothing else matters. Like this is really all that matters. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when you're young, of course, your idealism is strongest. Um, but that, I, I don't have an answer for why I was so deeply impacted just by encountering mystical thoughts. The only answer I have is karma. 
Mm-hmm. No, it must have just already been in me. And as soon as I encountered it, um, it was like puzzle piece fit. Um, and so then from there, I, I finished my schooling. I uh, got a degree in religious studies with a focus on Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and I studied abroad in India for a year. Um, but I still wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to be a nun. I, I knew that I would have a spiritual practice, but I was still in the phases, uh, the phase of um, kind of exploring. Mm. Um, and I, I studied Tibetan Buddhism quite a bit. Um, and that was intellectually very stimulating, but I wouldn't say that it really um, spoke to my heart. Um, And then I ended up visiting the Vedanta Society in Santa Barbara, California, which is where I was living because I went to UCSB. And I started volunteering on the property. I mean, it's a beautiful property that's open to the public. It's a convent, but it's got a public bookstore and a a public temple, and it's, it's just really beautiful. And so I started offering service there when I graduated from college a couple of days a week. Um, and I, I actually wasn't even interested in Vedanta for quite a bit. I was just interested in volunteering. And um, yeah, just one thing led to another. And I ended up reading a book about one of the um, saints associated with the order. And it just was like a magnet is the best way for me to describe it. Um, but then I had to face this pretty hard decision that, oh, my God, am I going to be a nun? Um, which was pretty traumatic because I always thought I'd get married and have kids. And I knew that my family wasn't going to understand. It would be really disturbing for them. Um, and all of that was true. <laughs> but I got through it and I joined the monastery, the convent. Um, and I was there for um, close to 15 very, very uh, happy years. Um, in the Vedanta Society, you take vows. Um, and so I took both my first and second vows. Um, it takes a while. Like you take your second vows after 10 years. It's a pretty big commitment. Um, and so I, I was never planning on leaving is kind of the short story there. Um, but I did. And the best way for me to describe that experience, I think I'm still understanding it, um, is it was like fate came and picked up the ship that was my life and turned it around and sent it in a different direction without really asking me. Um, Hmm. It was very, very difficult to leave. Um, I don't have children, but it it felt like the loss of a child. It was really painful, Um, but it was what happened. Um, And so I still consider myself a Vedantist. It's still my, my spiritual practice. I'm really close with the convent so it's you know it's not like there's any bad feelings in that way it was more just a shift in my path um and and when i did leave and this kind of is we now get into um, shamanism here um in order for me to do that to, to leave the order and to leave a life that i was you know really committed to um and to accept the fact that i you know had taken vows that i would be now shifting on and um It was almost like, I wouldn't call it a mental breakdown, but it was heading in that direction. It was, it was, it broke my heart. That's really the best way to put it. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I um, encountered shamanism, it was through actually a a shaman that um, 
I found out about through a client of my husband and ours. We have a flexibility training company and there's a psychiatrist that we work with. And uh, she told us about this shaman that um, on occasion she refers clients to. Um, and yeah, wow. I mean, it's kind of an interesting story. Do you want me to tell you this? or am I Yes, yes. Here? No, tell it all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's kind of wild. Um, I mean, I, first of all, I have to preface this with, because I know that sometimes um, when people start to embark upon a spiritual journey or an interest in mysticism, um, there there's like a focus on the psychic things and psychic phenomenon. Mm -hmm. um, like mind reading and, and uh, you know, uh, coincidental occurrences that aren't coincidental at all. And I, I just want to say that, I mean, from, in the Vedanta tradition and certainly in my spiritual path, that is really not focused on. If anything, it's kind of referred to as a deterrent um, because it can really, um, oh gosh, uh, involve the ego. And it's like, you get stuck there. It's like a detour from the main purpose, which is of course, you know, the enlightened soul. Um, but so anyway, and so, so when I think about shamanism in this story that I'm about to tell you, um, it has a little bit of that, but I, it, it just didn't really feel that way to me. And mm. I still don't view it that way. Um, but anyway, I, I, one of the nuns, one of the elderly nuns had passed away. And at this point I was living in Washington, DC and probably had been out of the convent for, um, Oh, I don't know, officially maybe less than a year. And um, I was thinking to go back for the memorial service. And it, my now husband made me an appointment with this shaman. And so I, I spoke with her on the phone. I, I worked with her on the phone because she didn't live in Washington, D.C. And she conducts her work remotely, as do I, as well as in person. And um I kind of explained my story and what had gone on and where I was. And she was really helpful with that in numerous ways. But one thing that occurred during the session, which was kind of in a way the smallest part, but is the part that's an interesting kind of bit to tell. She was like, I don't think that you should go back right now to Santa Barbara. It would be kind of like um, ripping a Band-Aid off a, a new wound. It needs to heal a bit. And so if you do go back, um, you should maybe stay somewhere else or, and that would have been really difficult. And now I, I had this session with her the night before I was to leave. And so I had a flight. As a matter of fact, my suitcase was packed. Everything was set. I was in Washington, D.C. I was flying back to California. Um, and so, you know, I finished the session and I would say about two hours later, and this was in the middle of summer. There was no weather component or coronavirus a while ago. Everything was totally copacetic with the airlines. I go to my computer and my flight had been canceled by the airline and totally refunded, hmm. which was like, I mean, when does that ever happen? It was a kind of a strange occurrence within the airline. I didn't try to cancel it. This just happened. And so it was a kind of a moment of, I don't know, acceptance for me, I guess you would say. There have been many moments since then. Um, but after that, I ended up developing a relationship with this shaman and working with her periodically. And she was really the first one that recognized my you know, capabilities to do shamanic healing work and as a shaman um, and, and kind of gave me the confidence to pursue it. But I would say that my shamanic practice is 
a direct result of the brokenheartedness that occurred, um, you know, leaving the convent. It, it, the way that it feels, and I feel like I'm still coming to an understanding about it, Lena, is that I had to expand my consciousness mm. to survive that break. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to make it bigger to include both my monastic path as well as more. And I would say at this point in my life, and I'm sure it will continue to grow and expand, shamanism is that answer. That 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 is the expansion of my consciousness to include my monastic life because when I do shamanic work, I'm working directly with my spiritual lineage. Um, and it, it's a very hidden practice in that you know I'm not a nun. I'm not outwardly um, declaring myself as such. Um, I no longer belong to the order, etc. But my work as a shaman is directly connected with all that. It's just hidden. It's, it's kind of behind a veil. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would say that it is my time in the convent and the connection with my spiritual lineage that has given me the capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk about suffering in, in uh, spiritual life and how there are even saints that have said, you know, please let me suffer because that's really the only time that I remember my spiritual nature forces me into that remembrance. And, you know, that's kind of a dreary thought because, of course, we can have mystical experiences and profound experiences when we're in utter joy as well. Mm-hmm. But I do think that when, um, I mean, I, I've had a direct experience now. I, I was pushed to a breaking point and the result was really an expansion of my consciousness, you know? So I don't feel that I've actually lost my monastic life at all. I feel like it's now within the umbrella of a greater consciousness, which is who I am. And it doesn't matter if that's a reality to the outside world. Cause it's like, I know it to be true. For me, mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. For anyone listening who doesn't know what a shaman in shaman is or pictures a shaman as an old, you know, Native American elderly man standing over a campfire beating a drum. Right. Because right. when we had our session together, I love how beautifully you just put it into the most simple terms of what sure. a shaman is. So could you share? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and now I had never, I studied religion in college. I've studied all the world's traditions. Um, the Vedanta tradition is very universal. Um, and I had never studied shamanism. And you could say in a way, even though it's not a religion, it's the oldest form of spirituality on the planet by a long shot. Um <laughs> So as a, as a tradition, as a discipline, it's ancient. Um, you know, scholars, some scholars even suggest that shamanism could have been a practice that our ape ancestors engaged in. Wow. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's always been with humanity as far as we can tell from historical records. Um, and when scholars have looked cross-culturally and cross-time periods, whether it's the Amazon or whether it's, you know, Siberia or, um, you know, the Pacific Northwest, whatever, or Africa, whatever part 
region of the world or whatever time period we're looking at, there seem to be common practices that um, shamans engage in. Um, so it has a thread of continuity of what it actually is. Um, you know, keeping in mind that we're talking about a huge period of time and a vast amount of um, space. So there's a lot of variety. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, these core practices um, are, first of all, shamans have the ability to, um, at will, alter their consciousness and um, travel or journey is the word that's often used, take a journey into the spiritual realm. Um, There are two uh, worlds that are often referred to, the upper world and the lower world. And it's not like the lower world in the way that we think of hell. It's not like that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just down and up is up. <laughs> you know, they're really kind of just inversions of one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and within those realms, there are um, spiritual beings that um, shamans are able to communicate with and receive assistance with and serve as like a go-between with the middle world, which is our plane. Mm-hmm. Um, and heal now of course if you there of course are have been in over the course of time bad shamans who do use their power in an evil way but in terms of certainly my work and i would say the majority it's benign it's for the purpose of bringing health bringing peace um traditionally shamans were the only doctors so people would go to them for all sorts of ailments um, and I would say that people come to me for a, a kind of a variety. Um, but I think that's mainly because if, if there's like a psychological or spiritual uh, problem, there's often a physical component too, right? Mm-hmm. So that's, I, I get the full spectrum, but, um, you know, in the modern world, we have hospitals and doctors and a whole variety of ways that we can heal. Um, so yeah, so that'd be the first thing. Shamans alter their consciousness and, and take a journey to receive divine guidance or spiritual guidance on behalf of the person that they're working with. Um, and then in terms of what it is that I'm actually looking for and doing. So I'm, I'm working on the level of the soul or the spirit. And um, I want it to be whole in the same way that we want your physical and psychological body to be whole and well. And so if there's something there that doesn't belong, I would extract it. Just like if you had a splinter or a bullet in your flesh, we'd want to remove it. Mm-hmm. Same idea. Um, and then if there's something that needs to be mended, I would want to reweave it. It's like a reweaving of the soul. And so that would just be like if you needed stitches or you had a gaping wound, you would want to mend that. Um, and then a third area, um, and these are just brush strokes. Um, a third area is retrieval. Um, and so that would be if there's a part missing, like a soul piece missing. And that uh, uh, kind of kind of a simple way to understand that is um, when people have a traumatic experience, they sometimes get stuck there. Mm-hmm. You know, part of them doesn't move forward and process it. Um, in psychological terms, it would be a little bit like disassociation. Mm-hmm. And, and people usually know that they feel like I'm not all here. Um, and so I would go back and, and work with that soul part to solve the trauma and help them feel comfortable, help that part of them feel comfortable to move forward and then integrate it all, them all together so that there's a wholeness again. 
Um, another way I like to think of it is like, who would you be? Who are you? Who are any of us if there had not been any problems? Mm-hmm. That's where we want to get to. And so when you bring a person's soul back to a place of wholeness and health, it's you're creating a change on a very deep level. And so then it, it like ricochets to the more superficial levels, the mental level and the physical level. Mm. Um, but it, it's like a, it's like a foundational piece. Um, and, and there are other areas too, like, like I've worked on a number of cases I just did last night, um, where there's, uh, a being or, a, or a person that's been in someone's life that was unable to pass on properly, or it could be the person themselves. Maybe they're approaching death and they're kind of stuck. And so I would work to move that soul forward in their evolutionary process, move them on, allow them to pass into the next round and not be stuck. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that definitely comes up too. Um, And I'm sure more things will come up the the more that my um, practice grows. But for me, it's pretty simple. Um, I don't really ever go into a session too concerned because I feel like I just have one thing that I have to do, and that's show up and be focused. And the the work that I'm doing, the healing that I'm doing, it's not my personal power. I'm working with, you know, help mm-hmm. and guidance who I have complete help uh, faith in. And so I know I, I have a, a certainty or a, a confidence that that help is there, will totally be there for me and um, is 100% going to do that which is best in that given situation. Yeah. So I have a two-part question, which I guess sure. is kind of in depth now, but I guess the first part is when you were learning about shamanism and you were stepping into that ability to use source energy to practice this type of healing, what did that what did that practice look like? How were you preparing? Sure. How were you learning? And then gotcha. once you got there, what does that even look like from a, a really just curious standpoint? Like yeah, during, during our session, I mean, we can explain it later about the drumming and the percussive, but I just want to know, like, what are you seeing when you're going in to kind of do that first discovery work to find out what a certain soul needs? Sure. Yeah. Well, so I would say that, um, I came to shamanism in kind of an interesting way. I didn't like study to be a shaman. Right. I would say that my study was um, the my spiritual background. That was preparatory. Mm-hmm. That was um, giving me the capacity to have insight in this way um, and focus. You know, be able to concentrate and focus. I think is essential. Um, and the way that I fell into an altered state and I use the word fall and that's what it is. It's shamanism when you're practicing that you're in an altered state of consciousness. Um, it was, it happened to me, to myself. It was on me. I was, um, lying in bed kind of midday later, later in the afternoon. And the shaman that I had been working with that I kind of loosely referred to as a mentor, um, she was already suggesting like, why don't you, just, you know, try this or try that very, very minor, minor suggestions with almost little to no direction. Um, because that's very common. It's very common for, for within, uh, traditions for 
lineage is for shamans to be self-taught, mm-hmm. for it to be a self-discovery, their practice. And that's exactly what it's been for me. Um, but anyway, I, I was lying in bed one afternoon and I didn't fall asleep. Instead, I fell into this kind of altered state of consciousness and I began working on my own uh, spiritual aspect, soul aspect. And I was extracting things that were very obvious to me. I, I could see them with this inner sight, I guess you would call it, from within an altered state of consciousness. It's it's a sight similar to, you know, like in broad daylight, if I were sitting across from you, I could see you. Mm-hmm. But it's just an altered plane, an alternate plane. Right. And so when I'm there, I'm not focused here, but I can go back and forth. Mm. Right. Um, and so the the effects of those extractions that I was doing on myself were really deep and profound. And so after that, I, you know, reached out to Susan and let her know what happened. And she was like, let's talk. Let's, let's talk. And she said, I think that you should pursue this now. Why don't you start practicing with people? Um, and she gave me like very, very minor directions. The only direction she gave me was you might want to get a, a, a tape of a drum because it'll help you focus. And when you go into an altered state, your main, you want to, you want to hold your intention. Mm. You want to know why you're going basically. Um, it's not just like a random showing up and see what happens. Right. Um, and so, you know, I just started altering my consciousness in, in very short amounts of time. Tools showed up, help showed up, um, understanding what direction showed up. And then really soon after that, I mean, we're talking within like weeks at the most, I started practicing with friends and family. And very soon after that, I, I got my practice going. Um, you know, I've taken a couple workshops with the Foundation for Shamanic Studies, um, but it, it hasn't really changed my innate practice at all. Um, but it's been nice to kind of encounter the community and, and whatnot. Um, and, you know, I've read books. There, there are some source books that are, you know, valuable. But my actual practice has been a total internal self-discovery. And if you look at shamanism in general, People come to it that the way that I have come to it is pretty common. Um, it, it's often the result of like a psychological break mm. or mm. a severe physical illness. So, for example, the um, woman who is like a mentor to me, her name Susan Grimaldi, um, she had, um, I believe, this rheumatic fever when she was like seven, she was a small child. And that put her into an altered state of consciousness. And ever since she's been able to do this work. Um, and so that, and that's common historically. Um, and then another way that the capacity would be passed on is through lineage. Um, you know, like parent to child and kind of just shows up for the child. Um, so yeah. And then in terms of, okay, so what am I doing when I work with you? Um, well, I play my drum and I, I do that because the, percussive instrument, which you'll almost always find in shamanism, um, it opens the doors of perception. The combination, I can play it for you right now so you'll be able to hear it. So tell me if you hear this. Mm-hmm. So you hear how there's like two parts to the beat. There's the like beat part and then there's the like wall, wall. Mm-hmm. So both are happening at the same time and that combo um, is very helpful in 
opening my doors of perception, helping me alter my consciousness. And then once I'm there, it helps me stay concentrated. And the drum for me, actually, and this may not be true of all shamans, but it's certainly true for me. It's like a vehicle. Um, like if you were riding a horse into outer space, it feels like that for me. It's like I'm riding my drum to wherever it is I'm going. It's taking me there. Um, and, and so as soon as I start to play it and I'm holding my intention, um, I either go up or go down. And I typically go up into the upper world first. And I oftentimes will um, commune immediately with some help or sometimes not because the connection is so strong that I don't need to go through that extra step of um, like, like in, with intention communing with very, very, with the help that I receive, it's just there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I pay close attention to what it is that I see, or it's usually visual or a knowing that comes. And it's like a story or a mosaic starts to unfold. And at first it's, it's like, walking around with a basket and gathering various herbs and flowers and you don't really quite know how it's going to fit together. But then as you proceed, it it becomes really obvious. Mm. Um, And so I would say it's a combination of seeing and knowing. Um, And I, I work a lot. I would say that my spiritual practice is very much so centered in the heart. And so I'll feel it in my heart, like the knowing it's a very, uh, tangible, strong feeling in the heart center. Um, and then the part that's hard, which you know, because you had a session, is I then need to take that information, which is coming really fast and happening outside of the realm of like time and space and like slow it down and give it language mm-hmm. and be able to explain it to the person. And that's like kind of where the work part is. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then, and and so the way that I conduct my sessions is, what I like to do, but, but you could journey for so many things and you wouldn't have to conduct the session in this way. This is just how I work with individuals, right? When I'm with someone's mm-hmm. as a client, as a patient. Um, first, I like to have a lengthy conversation about why it is that they're there and what it is that they need help with. And the session's already begun. I usually start to prepare myself my day before it even starts. And I'm just paying very close attention to everything to every word they say, to the way that they say it, to how they're behaving. It's like a super sensuous um, form of paying attention and listening. Um, and, and I'm already starting to sense things, um, but I try to just stay focused on letting them talk and taking in the content rather than jumping forward into having a vision about it. Mm-hmm. And then I'll usually stop and let them know that I'm going to play my drum for a little bit. And while I'm doing that, I'm seeking a vision for what the healing's going to entail. So I'm like getting, uh, that's when the mosaic is being pieced together and the knowing is coming um, and, and understanding what it is that needs to be done. Um, and it comes in the way that I was just describing. And so then I'll let them know. And usually like I'll verbally tell them, okay, so this is what I saw. This is what I think you need to do. And Typically, I would say the vast majority of the time, it's like it makes sense and, and to the person. And the way that I've understood that is this is them that we're talking about. I'm just like a pass through. Mm-hmm. I'm like accessing them. 
and then reflecting it back at them with some clarity. And as soon as I do that, that makes sense because it's them, mm-hmm. right? And it, there's a degree to which I'm kind of removed from it in, in a way. Um, I mean, obviously it's very personal and very intimate, but it, it really is them personally. And then I'll actually do the healing. And when I do the healing, that's when I'm working with their soul. And whether it be extracting or um, mending or retrieval or um, uh, creating a sense of knowing for them, giving them a spiritual insight from within the level of the soul. So many different things happen. Uh, But it, it, it looks exactly the way everything looks here, only it's in an alternate realm and it's spiritual. So it's um, more subtle. It's less opaque. It's less hard. It's less dense. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. It's just fascinating to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's, and then afterwards, as you know, I let them know what happened and let them know if there's any prescription going forward. Wow. I think the most fascinating part to me is being able to, with fluidity move back and forth between those two planes sure sure well you know i I think you would be surprised at how probably you're doing that and um many of us are doing that um you know we're just talking about the mind Mm -hmm. and that's really the vehicle and Consciousness is infinite and connected, and you can shift your consciousness at will. Um, when you meditate, you go into a different plane or realm. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in a room, and suppose you're in a room right now, you're in your room, and you see the objects before you, and suppose there was an object in the room that never came up in your consciousness. You just didn't see it like, a, I don't know, a book over in the corner or something. Does that object even exist for you? Is it even in your consciousness? It's mm. in a different realm in a way. Mm-hmm. And so this is just taking that a bit further and also um, uh, connecting to the universality of it. However, I will say that, um, you know, every shaman is going to have a subjective perception of you know, the upper world and the lower world. And I often tell that to clients because sometimes I'll need to describe the vision or the healing in a, you know, detailed, specific way. But I always say, please don't let your um, focus be the details surrounding this or the way in which I experienced it and, you know, the details of my vision, because that really is secondary. You know, another shaman could do the same work for you and see it in a different way. It would bring their subjectivity to it, but still accomplish the same task. Mm, True. Just in the same way that like, if there's, you know, a flower in the garden, it's a flower, right? But you see it one way and an animal who's colorblind sees it in a completely different Mm -hmm. way, right? So our subjectivity changes our perception. And so the details of the perception are secondary. And I think that's a danger in our modern spiritual world. We really get stuck there because we want an object. We are so, um, the ego for so long, for so many lifetimes has been so trained 
to seek after a thing outside of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we do that with spirituality too. And that's the danger in, um, you know, getting stuck there is spirituality is, um, it's on the inside. Mm-hmm. It's on the inside. Yes. That is one thing I am trying to change <laughs> with this platform is just remind everyone how much power they have within themselves and all the tools and everything they need is within. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are lacking nothing. Yeah. And I think now is a huge reminder of that with everything going on with the coronavirus of how much we have, we already have. It's very true. It's, it's, I'm, I'm feel like I'm um, experiencing it in real time. Like we all are, um, we don't know yet fully what the repercussions of this are, this is, mm-hmm. but I'm already sensing that there is a tremendous silver line, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just if we can just imagine, I mean, I, I live in or I did live in New York City, which at this point is the epicenter, and of course, it's also the epicenter for money and uh, you know uh, business and activity and mm-hmm. you know everything yes. that's like go go go. And New York is like stopping, and so the lesson or the insight that can come to us as a result of this, like oh, the epicenter can stop. The epicenter for activity on the planet can stop, and yet we still exist, mm-hmm. and we still go on. Yes, so it's. I think it will be a profound experience, actually, as it continues to unfold. Yeah, I like. I think that's the perfect point of view for it too, because it's so easy to fall into that scarcity mindset, especially when there are people who start to panic and then having those real human experiences that are a result of having those relationships with others. So to have that silver lining and hope and to choose that over the fear and the panic, I think is very powerful. Yeah. I mean, well, this is, would be another thing that really applies to shamanism is there's a balancing of more than one claim always. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and so, or juggling, you have to handle both at the same time. So we're in a physical realm. That's what this realm is. This is the realm of the impermanent. This is the realm of subject object, the realm of the ego, and it has a temporary reality. And so while we're here, we have to respect and to a degree play by the rules of that temporary reality, like, you know, quarantine. And if you're sick, go get to, et cetera. Make practical decisions, but at the same time, there is room within us to also have a spiritual realm and know that ultimately this has meaning and purpose and is not all bad and fits into a larger story that hasn't completed itself yet. Yeah, and so you can manage both of those at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's our task as humans, as spiritual beings in the human body. That's our task is to be able to manage both of those realms at the exact same time. And my shamanic practice is just that. And you'll find in historically that shamans had day jobs. You know, they were farmers. They were this, they were that. And then at night, they would conduct their shamanic work. They had families. They lived very practical existence, existences. And then they would switch. And then come back. <laughs> yeah. So they already and that's doing what it. we all have to do. That's what we all have to do. Yeah. 
so true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so tell me, what is on your spiritual bucket list? Oh gosh, you know, when you ask me that, that's such an interesting question. At this point, you know, I would say it. I really want to um, grow my practice. Um, the, my one-on-one practice where I'm working individually with people is such a, oh my gosh, it, it's just so fulfilling for me spiritually. I don't have a desire to go any, any particular place. I don't mm. have, I mean, I've, I've lived in India for a year. I've traveled to so many holy places. Um, you know, I have a very sound meditation practice. I you know, I, I was blessed to have, you know, a saintly teacher and to be able to spend, uh, you know, the majority of my monastic life learning directly from him and spending time with him. I, I don't have like a place to go to or I, I want to grow my practice and have it become a, um, a daily part of my life where mm-hmm. I get to work with people because every time I do, it's like a touchstone for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really, I mean, I don't know that that's a, yeah, that's on my spiritual in, in 10 years, I would like to see this practice that I've um, you know, started to be uh, like, I would say, Oh God, 80% of what it is I'm doing. Wow. I think that's the yeah. perfect thing to have on your bucket list. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Because <laughs> it's all about what fuels your soul and what feeds your soul. So I think. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Whenever you can do anything, no matter what it is, go into nature, sit down and meditate, uh, sing a beautiful song, look at a piece of art, and it inspires that expansion within you. That is religion. Mm-hmm. That is God. That is the infinite. Um, and I think that people can access, access that in so many different ways. I agree. So I like to end this podcast with wise words for anyone out there who needs that extra empowerment today to step into their highest self. So what are your wise words to end on? Ah, that's a great question. You know, the thing that's coming up in my mind immediately is, um, it's kind of a twofold answer. I think that's something that's been lost in um, our modern Western unchurched world and unchurched for a good reason. You know, the church has been very problem. All of the churches have been very problematic, but we've lost our love of God. However you define God, however that is. And that love is of very magnetic force in someone's spiritual life. It's like, it's like draws the divine, draws your soul right to you when you have a love for it. And so I would say, look for that. Look mm-hmm. for that. I mean, the first place to look is in the heart, but having a love for your spirituality is really, really important. It's it's a very compelling force.
Thank you for listening to Enlightenhood. For more wisdom from spiritual mamas like you in the form of guided meditations, videos, articles, masterclasses, and more, check us out at enlightenhood.com or connect with us on Instagram at enlightenhood. If you need a tribe of like-minded women to dive into personal and spiritual development with, check out our monthly membership where we show up, go inward and upward together. Enroll today at enlightenhood.com backslash membership for less than the cost of a yoga class. Until next time, you mindful mamas.